0: Now let's go to this um, great chapter of God's word, Romans and chapter 1. What a way to start a new year, Romans and chapter 1. Paul's letter to Rome is the high peak of the Bible, whichever way you look at it. If you're wanting to know about anything and everything that's all important in God's word, you start at Romans. It's the clearest gospel of all. If you understand Romans, you have a sure road open to you for understanding the whole scripture. This is the key. All roads in the Bible lead to Rome. No, they lead to Romans. What is the message of Romans? Well, when it gets into your heart, there is no telling what will happen to you. Here is God's personal letter to each of his spiritual children. No one can read Romans too often or study it too well. The more it is studied, the easier it is. The more deeply Romans is studied, the more precious things are found. So this is for everyone, without exception. And we must work hard, remember Romans night and day, until you are acquainted with all the contents of this personal letter. This is the honeycomb, filled with heavenly sweetness. There is no book in all of history which God has used to change so many lives. Romans is the book that changed Augustine. Romans is the book that changed Luther. Romans is the book that changed my life back in 1971. In the most unlikely of places, I was at the very tip of Australia, way up at Bamaga, tip of Cape York, as a teacher being transferred there. And in a tiny little village, an Aboriginal village, Mapoon, I heard preaching on the book of Romans, a series of sermons, and my life was radically changed just within a few space of a few months. Listening to those sermons, a man called Goday says, "There's never been a spiritual movement in the in the church without Romans, or the contents of Romans, maybe from Galatians, which is very similar, or a lot of the things that are said in Isaiah. As soon as the, the, the content, that kind of content gets into people's heart." There is spiritual movement, there is great change in people's lives. What is it that makes us so poor in our souls? It may well be that each of us needs to discover or rediscover Romans. We all fear change. Change makes us anxious, but change is precisely what we need or we wouldn't be here still. We wouldn't be listening to what we're listening today still. God would not need to speak to us if we didn't need to change. My first main point about Romans then is about God's incredible love for us. It's in verse 7. Romans 1 and verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. God's love is a dynamic and active thing. What's it like? Well, God's love always does things. If you go across to Romans 5 and verse 5, Romans 5 and verse 5 God's love is poured out his love is god has poured out his love into our hearts by the holy spirit whom he has given us god's love does things remember god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son john 3:16 god's love does things love is a doing word and with god especially God does things. Rome is a city full of horrible sin and behaviour. It makes us wince sometimes to read that chapter, doesn't it? This chapter of Romans 1. But here in Rome itself, there are people who live an entirely different kind of life. What is it that brings these Roman Christians to this new life? There is only one answer. It is the love of God. It is always the love of God that brings people from a godless world and from the slavery of the devil, and from their own sinful hearts, that jail that we find ourselves in, it's the love of God that brings us through and brings us out. This is the first thing. We don't become people who are loved by God because we love him. He loves us first, if you look at Romans 1 and verse 7, and you look carefully there, to all in Rome who are are loved by God. The word is passive. You are loved by God. Not that you love God, but that you are loved by Him. He does the loving first. It is the love that takes the initiative. God takes the initiative and movement and brings us out of our terrible plight and our predicament. This is a stupendous thing. These Roman Christians are all the objects of God's special love. This is precisely the same formula that is used when the Father, speaking of Jesus at His baptism, and a voice from heaven, uh, Matthew three and verse seventeen, Matthew three seventeen, and a voice from heaven said, "This is my Son, whom I love." It's the same when Jesus is transfigured. Remember when people, the disciples, see something of His greatness. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5. While they were, John was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. No, while while Jesus was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased." That's the same formula that's used here of those Roman Christians. The very same formula. In the first place it is the Lord Jesus who is loved by God but in in God's way of doing things God's love doesn't stop at his one and only son. God then pours out on those within his family the same, the very same, immeasurable love. This is the everlasting love that's invincible. This is the love that's like hot coals. Don't stand on them, they'll burn you. This love burns our feet when we tread near it. This is love that is strong as death. Now Christian people here this morning, this is the truth about us. It's really too incredible to listen to, too incredible to even think about. It is something that defies our wildest dreams. It is almost impossible to believe this fact. Yet as certainly as we are alive this morning, we are Christians for one reason only, that God has set His love on us. He sets it on us, setting it in a deliberate way. He cares about us and cares about us infinitely and will never let us go once He has us in His love. This makes, what makes the love of God even more incredible is that it, as you read Romans, you will find it is something completely undeserved. Something that you never wanted in any way. You weren't worthy of in any way. What love? What boundless love? My second main point, is a little bit more complicated, we go to the great theme of Romans, is about the righteousness that is from God. Paul is God intoxicated. It's like he's on drugs with God. That's how he feels. And if you go through Romans, you'll find the main word used in Romans, apart from little words like and, and but, and that. What is the main word? The main word used in Romans is the word God. All the way through, Paul can't help himself, but mention God all the time. The message that Paul has is an announcement from God himself. Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. God, the gospel God promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding God's son, it just keeps going those pronouns there all refer back to God all the way through it is God's gospel, God initiated the gospel he owns the gospel, he designed the gospel it's good news of the highest order but it all comes from God and now God is simply using Paul to communicate that gospel to us I am not ashamed, verse 16, of the gospel because it is the power of God. Verse 16, verse 17. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now what's the meaning of this term righteousness from God? Every generation this is debated. You go to any college where the truth is taught and you'll find that they're debating this term. They're either putting it under the carpet and pretending that it's not there and whispering about it or that somebody is at the lecture room and he keeps telling people and she keeps telling people a different view or what might be the true view of this term righteousness from God. How Luther struggled with this problem. This problem bothered him until one day God showed him what it really meant in God's grace, and God's love. The main subject of the letter then is this righteousness from God. The subject is introduced right at the beginning. Here is the theme, righteousness from God. This draws attention to the fact that a special and co- uncommon righteousness is involved. What does? Well, if you were to go to the original text, you'll find there's no ah, there's no the, there's no some righteousness our translation will make it smoother for people to read puts in the little word, ah, but it shouldn't be there why shouldn't it be there? why is this righteousness just righteousness the gospel, in the gospel, righteousness from God is revealed righteousness that is by faith from first to last well it's to draw attention to the fact that it is something special something unique something unbelievable, just like the love of God this righteousness from God something special righteousness in question is the personal possession of a believer Luther got it many people in this building have it what is this righteousness from God well a quotation comes from Habakkuk 2 and verse 4 righteousness from God or righteousness from God is revealed righteousness it is by faith from first to last just as it is written the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk was in trouble. Here is God's prophet. And dreadful things are going on all around him. God's people have abandoned God's truth and living any old how. And Habakkuk is upset. Why doesn't God do something about this? And he is reassured as God speaks to him that God has a big plan that involves other nations and it involves Habakkuk himself. The righteous will live by faith you're to have my righteousness and you keep going and trust me now that little text in Habakkuk is the basis of the book of Hebrews the basis of the book of Galatians and the basis of this book God builds on it and makes it clear as we go further and further into the scriptures what is this righteousness from God well we started this morning with Psalm 98 and verse 1 and 2 We'll go back to it in a second, but before we do, look at verse 16. What are these subjects in verse 16 and 17? You've got the power of God, you've got salvation, you've got righteousness from God, and you've got that word revealed or revelation. Four things. When we started the service this morning, Ray read us Psalm 98, 1 and 2. Psalm 98, verse 1 and 2. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things, His right hand, that's God's power. And His holy arm, that's God's power. Just the same as Romans 1.16. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. That's the second thing. The Lord has made His salvation known and has revealed His righteousness. To the nations. All four things. So Paul is not coming up with something new when he uses these combinations. The power of God, righteousness, revealed, and salvation. Paul is actually, if you go through and find all the quotations from the Old Testament and tiny little snippets from the Old Testament, you'll find that Paul knows the Old Testament backwards. This is just a culmination. It's all come from The truth that God has been revealing from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through. Paul is just bringing it all together as the great scholar he is and the man who wants these Roman Christians to be clear on this business. Righteousness from God. In the language of the Old Testament, salvation from God and righteousness from God are virtually the same. They complement complement one another so it isn't that complicated after all and I'll continue to explain the word Paul uses for revealed when he's talking about this righteousness that is revealed is, a, is something that is an action and an operation God doesn't say oh here's righteousness look at it no In the gospel, righteousness of God is actively and dynamically brought to bear on our human condition and our human problems and our human difficulties. We're all in trouble. And God sees that. And God's going to do something about that. The other word for this righteousness, so you don't get tangled up as you're going through, is justification. It's the same word. It sounds like a big mouthful, doesn't it? And it puts people off. You know why Satan doesn't want you to know? You need to know. And you desperately need to know what this righteousness is, this justification. What happened to Luther as he finds out? Luther explains God does not want to give us, God does not want to save us by our own righteousness, but by an alien righteousness. One that doesn't originate in ourselves, but comes to us from beyond, beyond ourselves. It does not arise on earth, but comes to us from heaven. This righteousness or justification is a legal standing. And the best way I can describe it is from the game of Monopoly. When you're playing Monopoly, who plays? anybody played Monopoly? I think some of you might have. I'm sure some of you do like this game. When you're playing Monopoly, what happens? This one little card that you always want to get. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. I know people like to have Park Lane and Mayfair, but that doesn't help you win the game if you're stuck in jail. You might be able to get some rent, but you can't build up things if you're stuck in jail. But if you have this little get-out-of-jail-free card, whether it's a fake one or the real one, and you're ready to use it when you need it, You can keep travelling, you can keep trading, you can keep building. And that's just what this righteousness from God is like. It means pardon, acceptance, authority, rights, privilege, and even adoption into God's family. We come out of condemnation into acceptance. You don't believe me? What's the opposite to this righteousness? And that's one of the easiest ways to find out what something is. What's the opposite to black? You all know. What? It's white. What's the opposite to? And you all know. Big. It's little. The opposite to this righteousness is condemnation. You're not just convicted. You're condemned and you're ready to die. Let's go across to chapter 5. Chapter 5. And verse 16. The judgment followed one sin. The judgment followed one sin. 5.16 And brought condemnation but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification or righteousness. Go down further. Verse 18. Consequently just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men so the result of one act of righteousness was Justification. Is just get out of jail free card that we all need. It's the opposite of being condemned. Romans eight, the best part of Romans is Romans eight. Romans eight and verse, uh, what is it? Thirty three, verse thirty three. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies or puts people in the right. Who is he that condemns? see black and white the opposite to being justified or righteous is to be condemned you're in big trouble if you don't know this righteousness we come out of condemnation into acceptance we come out of bondage and destitution into safety, certainty and enjoyment this alien righteousness is the mark of a standing or falling church It's the mark of a standing or falling college. It's the mark of a standing or falling Christian. And in every generation, as I've said, it is always debated. Justification may may, must always come amazingly new in every generation because we are all by nature ignorant of the gospel and we jump to conclusions that are wrong. And we get it wrong or we just say it's too difficult. It's not too difficult. Think of the get out of jail free card. That's what it is. You come to God, the judge of all, and he says, you're condemned, and you say, no, I have an alien righteousness. I'm justified. I'm in the right. Before we really understand this very well, though, we've got to look at the rest of Romans chapter 1. So we breathe deeply, and what's the subject now before us? It is the anger of God. This is what's called the introduction to the gospel. Good news? You don't understand the good news very well at all unless you go through the introduction. And what's the introduction? It's the anger of God. Verse 18, the wrath. See, it should be that little word for there. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. This is my last main point this morning. The wrath or the anger of God present tense is used it's being revealed God is always revealing his anger always, he's always doing it present continuous tense the wrath of God is always being revealed is being revealed to whom? to everybody because it comes from heaven everybody knows it's a universal disclosure, it's a constant disclosure, yes Everybody everybody has inklings of God's anger even if they try to suppress the truth that God tells them that they're doing wrong and they're under his condemnation and in trouble. I suppose there's nothing in the Christian message that's so much hated and so much objected to as this particular truth. Some deny it altogether and speak openly against God's anger or we'll try to explain it away. Others deny it by how they, by their practice, is never mentioned. But Paul uses the term ten times in one little letter. He uses the term wrath or anger. Do you really accept this truth? Are we controlled by this truth? Does this truth govern our evangelism when we share the gospel? Does this truth come into our practice as well as our theory? There are many people who are denying this truth of God's anger in practice. They offer Christ to people as a friend or helper. All that is perfectly true, but you do not start there. The wrath of God is where Paul starts when he wants, and that's where he wants us to start. In our generation, we are bright and breezy. This truth has gone from most evangelical churches. But this wrath of God is still the first thing, whether people mention it or they don't mention it. Truth is truth, no matter what people say or think. It stays truth. God gets angry. You saw my story before, many of you. This little boy in great trouble because his stepfather is playing up. Shouldn't God get angry with that man? who brings such disaster into a family? God has rules. God has a formula for marriage. It's a beautiful thing. Mum is having a nervous breakdown. Shouldn't God be angry with that man, Mr West? God has a reason to be upset. And God looks into all our hearts. And he has a formula and a great plan for all of our lives. And what are we doing about that? We don't really want it. So God has a reason to be upset. There are three D's here. God is upset because of deliberate sin. D for deliberate. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Do they have an excuse? Do we have an excuse? since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal nature his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made people know better everybody knows better it's deliberate sin that upsets God this truth hits us in our conscience. This conscience warns. This conscience speaks to us and tells us not to do certain things. It prohibits. The conscience condemns. This awareness becomes more marked at particular times in our lives. In times of war. Or times of illness. Or times of death. But people will do anything rather than stop and think at such times. Look at verse 32. Last verse in the chapter, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Deliberate sin. That's why God's upset. He should be upset. He's made the right way. He cares about every one of us. Gives us life in the first place. Gives us our very breath. And we deliberately suppress his truth in our lives. God is also upset because of debasing sin. Verse 22 and verse 23. Verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This is not people who can't think straight, this is moral fools, people who deliberately won't live straight. If you look at your Old Testament definition of fool, you'll find it in Proverbs, nearly every verse, certainly every chapter. This is a person who won't think properly. They don't want to think properly. Deliberate, debasing sin. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Here is this glorious God who made everything in the first place, who suspends the earth over nothing, who calls things that are not as though they were, this grand and glorious God and people want to worship created things instead. And they choose to worship created things. When people cease to worship God, what do they do? They worship money and wealth and the things that they buy, especially houses and cars social standing and status and position people worship their own bodies I could not believe how many people are running alongside our driveway where we're coming up to this morning must have been hundreds of people out in that heat or running or walking fast some carrying weights it's called the body beautiful movement I'm not against people keeping fit but It's it's ridiculous how far people will go. How ridiculous it's to do with the body beautiful. The body becomes an object of worship. I've known people who worship their children. There's popular psychology that teaches us to worship ourselves. And I never cease to be amazed as a teacher working with staff and finding out nearly all these educated people follow the stars. Well-educated people. Created things. Rather than the Creator. This is debasing ourselves. Debasing sin. We are this glorious person to magnify in our lives and to please and our every move and our every thought, and yet what we do? We choose something else that's so much un- so unworthy. So terrible. It debases us. Sin is deliberate, it's debasing, and our Bible goes still further. It's very difficult when you're reading the Bible with little children like we do with our grandchildren. I've got to skip a few chapters on the way through because of all the disgusting things that the Bible actually reveals about people and how people can live and what lengths they'll do and go to against God. God is angry and he has reason to be angry because of disgusting sin. The list here in Romans 1 is shocking. And the same inflammation of lust that's in verse 27 in perverted relationships is found in all disgusting behaviour. How futile and ridiculous it is to joke about sin when you think of what it does. What it does in that little boy's life as I read that story, that's fiction. Often fiction is truer to life than fact because people don't really want to describe what happens in people's lives, how disgusting things that people will do and they will allow themselves to be involved in. You see, the passion that's involved in temper and malice and jealousy and envy, the way in which men, women, and even little children scheme to destroy each other socially and in other respects. If we know anything of God at all, his holy and righteous character, we shouldn't be surprised that God gets upset, that he's angry. God's anger doesn't mean that he's impatient or lacking in self control. Read your Bible carefully, you'll find that it never happens. He's not lacking in self control. God's love never makes him a foolish, impulsive, immoral person. And God's anger is like that it never makes him self indulgent, he never becomes irritable. God's anger is never the morally ignoble thing that our anger so often is. Something that we regret. God is only angry when anger is called for. Somebody will say, but isn't this just cruelty? Like a cruel and fear monster when God's angry and upset? God's anger is that of a righteous judge. This idea of righteousness has to do with a legal term. Remember I said it's a get out of jail free card And God's righteousness has to do with a righteous judge. And his anger is that. Did you notice that repeated formula in verse 24, verse 26 and verse 28? God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Why does God do that? God never judges without giving a reason. There's always a therefore or a because. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Why? Go back to verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles because of their idolatry. That's why God gave them over. God had a reason. The second reason, the second thing, if somebody thinks that God's anger is that of somebody who's cruel and monstrous, is that God's anger may seem cruel and monster, but it is always, monstrous, but it is always something that people choose for themselves. The unbeliever prefers to be by him or herself without God, defying God, having God against him or her. And God gives that person their preference because he has made us people in his image, a person, a person who can make choices. And when we choose not to have him as our God, he gives us a choice our preference, what we want. The real meaning of God's action in anger is to give people what they choose, nothing more, nothing less. Well, as I come to conclude, just a couple of sentences. I say this morning, don't sidestep the issue of God's anger. Anger with your sin, whatever it is. It might be one of those subtle sins that's easy to hide, like a bit of pride. Or whatever else it is. Don't sidestep the anger as God searches you. God sees you and God knows you. God knows that you have virtually no interest in his gospel until you see your terrible plight as a sinner before him. Look through the list in Romans 1. Ask God to show you by his spirit where you're going wrong and what he really wants in your life. Ask him to search you and to show you a need of that get out of jail free card, that righteousness be realistic about his anger don't pretend that God's different from what he is he really loves and that's why he gets upset he really cares that's why he gets upset when we want to choose our own way and go a different way He got things that are so much better for us not just for time, but for eternity. Let's speak with Him. Lord God, we've been talking about a complicated and difficult subject that's not as well known to us as it should be. We thank You that You do get upset, but that You've made us persons to make choices. And we ask that you'd work by your Holy Spirit today as you search us and show us our need of a Saviour. We thank you Lord Jesus that you came to take that anger that we deserve, to propitiate and make peace with the Father. Father God, we thank you for your perfect plan. That you love those Roman Christians and love them with such an incredible love. And that you love the people who know you bowed before you this morning. And that we have that righteousness put to our account, that justification that we desperately need. And this gives us status and acceptance great joy that you had cared for us in such a perfect and fabulous way. O Lord God, help us as we read chapters like the one one before us, and as we bow before you, to not only see our sin, but to see our need of a perfect saviour, a perfect sacrifice for our sin, and that the ransom has been paid, and paid in such a costly way as you Lord Jesus took the doom and terror that we deserved we praise you we praise you for your voice speaking to us today and that you're so gracious to us to show us your way and to teach us your path. and we give you praise in Jesus name Amen